Welcome to Language During Mealtime. Certified speech-language pathologist and children's book author Becca Eisenberg brings you creative professionals from the language learning and children's education field. With these ideas, parents can help their children with special needs improve language and reading abilities. Hi, my name is Becca Eisenberg. Welcome to my podcast, Language During Mealtime, episode number 80. Today, I'll be interviewing David Small, author of Stitches, an extraordinary graphic novel. Um, And also, he also has illustrated many, many more picture books as well as a graphic novel, which we'll be talking about today as well. Um, David Small was born and raised in Detroit. He received his Bachelor of Fine Arts at Wayne State and his MFA from Yale. To date, he has illustrated more than 50 picture books for children and two graphic novels for adults. His picture books have earned him a Caldecott Medal, two Caldecott Honors, two Christopher Medals, and Gold Medal from the Society of Illustrators. His graphic memoir, Stitches, a New York Times bestseller and National Book Award finalist, has been translated into 12 foreign languages. Both Stitches and his graphic novel, Home After Dark, received the American Library Association's Alex Award for best novels published for adults that are also suitable for young adult readers. Um, So thank you so much for being here today, David. It's like, I think, you know, I'm just such a big fan of your work. And it's, you know, one of the reasons I reached out, well, many of the reasons is that after reading Stitches, I just was so fascinated with, you know, I wanted to know more about how you um, wrote and illustrated the book. And there's just, there's so, I mean, there's just so much to talk about. So we'll get started. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is just about the process in writing stitches. And I was just wondering if the art or the words came first. So I was hoping to talk a little bit about that. It's an interesting question because uh, generally with me, the pictures come first. Um, although some of my uh, picture books have been inspired by just a single word or a single phrase, but usually, I think, and I think visually, um, writing is is uh, is difficult for me. Uh, I can do it. I'm much better at it now than I used to be, but I really struggled for years, um, and. The visual is just much, much, much more natural and spontaneous. Uh, but with stitches, um, I did have this image in mind from my childhood, uh, a scene in, that's in the book, uh, early in the book. Um, I, uh, for you readers who haven't read the book, I basically grew up in a hospital where my father was a radiologist. At least I would spend time there every day when we would go down to pick him up for work when everything was closed down. And I would, I would uh, leave my parents and go wandering through the hospital, uh, the empty corridors. And in this one thing that I remembered so vividly, I was sock skating in a, on a newly waxed floor down a corridor in, in the pathology lab, part of the pathology part of the hospital. And I came across this, a glass case full of jars um, showing, I didn't know what I was looking at, but what it was showing was um, the 12 stages of the fetus in the mother's body. And 
uh, ending in a fetus that was almost fully formed as a baby. But here it was in a jar, uh, all curled up. Uh, its face, its fists curled up near its face and a frown on its face. It looked like an angry little man in a jar. And because I did not understand what I was looking at, it terrified me. And uh, that was what I remembered. And I wrote it down as a, as a story. Um, not with any conclusion, really, but just as a scene. And I showed it to my literary agent who thought it was the start of a good novel. And so I played around with that idea for about 10 years while I did other things. And um, it never did evolve into a prose piece. Uh, but it stayed in the back of my mind, especially that one powerful scene. Um, and I had other reasons other than this one frightening memory to look into my past um, because I had nearly reached the age of 60 and was still having dreams and troubling thoughts uh, of, a, of a much younger man. Um, and I, I, I think what I wanted really above all was more psychoanalysis. I'd been very, very lucky to have 12 years of psycho, psycho good traditional Freudian analysis with a, a wonderful doctor at the time I was 15 between 15 and 24, I guess. Um, and I wanted more of that. But where we live out here in the, in the country on a prairie, uh, that kind of help wasn't available. So if I was going to do this thing, it was going to have to expand beyond that scene I described, and it was going to uh, have to talk more about my family situation which was the real trouble. Um, and uh, I, um, I didn't know how it was going to get done until one winter, uh, Sarah and I were in Paris visiting a friend, an illustrator friend, whose son was becoming an illustrator, and he was working on a graphic novel. And uh, we went to his apartment, and he showed me all of his pages with all these panels. And I thought, well, I'll never do one of those things. It's too much drawing. Uh, but then he, um, he knew my work. Uh, Pierre knew my stuff. And he turned to his bookcase and he began pulling graph French graphic novels and, and uh, uh, mainly French ones, but a couple of them, one by an Italian. Um, Stuff, and I realized there was stuff going on in the graphic novel in Europe that was so much more adult mm -hmm. um, and so much more serious than anything I've ever seen, I had ever seen in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked at fascination, wonderful art, and these very, uh, at least what I took to be, because I can't read French that well, mature themes. Um, and the thing that impressed me most was that a lot of these artists seem to have been influenced um, by the same filmmakers whom, who inf influenced me. 
in college back in the 60s. Uh, people like Hitchcock, Truffaut, uh, Bergman, Antonioni, Fellini, uh, all those wonderful films that were coming out in the 60s and shown in art film settings. Uh, those had been a big inspiration to me as a storyteller, but I had never, as a children's book illustrator, had much of a, uh, a way of putting them to, putting what I knew from them to use. But here I saw an opportunity to do that. And uh, so when we got back to Michigan after that Paris trip, um, I began just sketching scenes from my early life. Um, and I would do this in the evening after I had done my children's book work. I'd go back. We have two houses here. This one that I'm in is my studio, and next door is where we live. And I would go home and sit at the kitchen table while my wife was off at her Tai Chi class. And, uh, and I just would draw things at random from, from my life. And, uh, and I started really enjoying the whole process. Um, it's just, it seemed so liberating to me after the very kind of rigid format of kids' books, uh, you know, always 32 or 40 or 48 pages, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. all of the necessary restrictions on language and content. Um, I felt uh, a freedom that I hadn't had before as, a, as an illustrator. And uh, the more I got into it, the more the things developed. And I kept sending segments off to my agent and, uh, um, and she was very encouraging. So eventually, after after many years, um, she she put together a package and sold it to a great publisher. And uh, but I worked even more. I think I'd say I worked probably another five years on it after signing those contracts. Why did it take so long? Um, because I can see why it would take so long, though, because, I mean, it's just there's so much detail and so much um, emotion, I think, in the book. I could feel the emotion of all of the characters as I was reading it. And yep. that's how I felt. Like, I felt like the way that you drew the pictures, you had the words, but it was like the pictures just like really described, you could feel like you were in the moment. Like you could, that's how I felt when I was reading it. I could feel the, the tension or I could feel like just based on the facial expressions of, you know, of like how you, I, I, your family, like the, your mom and, and your dad, like kind of like what that was, you don't have to say it. You could just, the way that you described it and the way that you drew it was just extraordinary. So yeah, well, one of the things that I had to convey was what we were talking about before, the, the condition of being voiceless, mm -hmm. which uh, wasn't with me, uh, wasn't a physical thing with me to begin with in our family. But um, the fact is that I, I grew up, my brother and I grew up in a, in a totalitarian regime. <laughs> 
where free speech was absolutely forbidden um, and showing any kind of emotion was forbidden. And, um, and so, I, and also, uh, remember my analyst saying a wonderful thing after we'd known each other for a couple of years, he, and he really understood what was going on with me. He said, you know, David, the child, the infant who sits in his crib and is never picked up and held, um, looks out, he reaches out to the world with his eyes. And uh, I thought that was just such an accurate and, 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 uh, and good description. Basically what an artist or an artistic person drew all the time. I wasn't allowed to speak. Um, I was allowed to draw. That to my mother seemed very clever. But then, of course, later on, um, at 14, I had this apparition that, uh, which is also in the book, um, in which one of my vocal cords was paralyzed. And for 10 years, I practically had no voice at all. And eventually, through, I wouldn't call it a vocal exercise exactly, but it was, I did a bunch of screaming while I was driving in the car, and it thickened up the one vocal cord that I had and gave me this voice that you hear now, more or less. Um, so, uh, so voicelessness is really a, a very a big part of stitches. It's uh, and it was uh, an interesting exercise in trying to convey that state of being. Yeah, and that's really what I think. Um, I, that's why I gravitated towards. The novel a lot because you know as a speech language pathologist working with um, children, teenagers, adults across the lifespan who either are nonverbal or minimally verbal and could under they could understand but they can't express and so I thought that that um, just a description of what it was like. I mean, I'm just one of the questions I have for you is like, what was that like for you not being able to to speak? You know, because you had the ability to speak and then you lost it. Um, and I'm just curious about what that experience was like and how it differed or how is the same versus the character in the story? Um, it, 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 first of all, by nature, I would say I was a very expressive, um, almost dramatic child. I really loved to clown and dance around the house and so on. And that was put up with to a certain extent, but um, also frowned upon to a certain extent. Uh, so when I actually lost my voice, um, any question that I was ever going to become an actor, for example, went out the window. Uh, that's when I started writing plays, actually, because I loved the theater and wanted to be a part of it somehow. Uh, but there's one condition, there's one thing about being voiceless that I, that I want to say, talk about for a second here. Um, because it's beginning to happen to me again as my voice goes this year and, and the, the date approaches when I need another injection. And by then my voice will be practically gone. Um, 
it's a, it's a strange situation in public to be standing amongst a group of people having a discussion in a usually in a lively room and um and people are throwing out opinions right and left and i have opinions too uh but because my voice gets so soft and whispery um when i say i speak something speak my opinion on a subject it's as if nobody around me hears what i said Mm -hmm. uh, nobody looks at me nobody pays any attention and then there's this very weird experience of suddenly hearing somebody in the group say exactly what I just said yeah my own words so it's like I've become this ghost who inserts subliminal ideas into the group conversation and it's not even realized that it's happening um, it used to make me furious. Uh, now it amuses me because actually, you know, I can, with these injections, have my voice back, have a real voice. Yeah, but it's, it's you know what, it's, it's interesting, but it, it, it's an experience that I know that, you know, one of the things that I do is try to help other people, like, listen to whether it's the voice, whether it's their, you know, communication device, however they're communicating. But it's true. A lot of people feel when they don't, you know, when you can't, you don't have your voice. It's like a lot of times just more passive or not listened to. Um, I had that experience with my mom who had Parkinson's and her voice got very low. Mm. And suddenly it's just, you know, she felt like she wasn't part of the conversation anymore. And so as a speech pathologist, you know, as her daughter, but I was always like, okay, hold on, just wait and let's hear what she has to say. Um, but I could totally understand that. And then you feel like a fool for having to quiet the group down and, and make your pronouncement. You know, it's, uh, it didn't mean that much, folks. You know, I was just kind right. of... Right. No, I know. No, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying because I, I think I'm in... The situation a lot where I'm trying to facilitate it, but at the same time, you don't want to make such a big deal that it puts them, that particular person on the spot. So it's, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a, it's a really important novel for, for people to read, for people to understand, like not just, I mean, the, there's just so many different things about the novel. Um, and one of the things that struck me too was just the color the black and white color. And I was wondering like what your thoughts were about keeping it black and white, black and white versus like having color in it. I love black and white. Um, for the simple reason that it simplifies everything. Uh, color always confuses the issue. Mm. Um, so if you're, if you're a student of film, as I've been for so long, it's interesting to see the great black and white filmmakers like Hitchcock, like Bergman, like Fellini, uh, mostly Fellini out for the moment. When they turn to color, um, Bergman in particular, Ingmar Bergman in particular, made very black and white films in color. He limited his palette to uh, dull colors, brown, browns, and uh, and dull yellows, and so because he didn't, I think it was because 
A, he was doing it because color is more commercial. But B, he didn't want to lose that um, simplicity and directness of the black and white film. Uh, Fellini used color in a wild way. And it kind of overtook everything. But I'm also talking about a bunch of old films that nobody ever watches. Oh, that's really interesting. I never really thought about like that. And the other thing, too, that I thought was so interesting is that just by reading it, I felt like I knew the time that it was in, that it was back in the 50s. Like it just you you captured that. And I don't know how you capture. I mean, listen, I love old films. I grew up watching Alfred Hitchcock and black and white, black and white shows and movie that's like my parents would always show me. And so I understand what you're saying. And it's like, but you by by reading it, I felt I knew it was around that time. But I don't know how you did that, <laughs> how you how you just set it up like that without saying it. It's it's really interesting. It's, it's, uh, I think it's a kind of visceral thing with me. Um, but let's, you, you like Hitchcock, uh, I'll tell you, um, it may sound strange for a children's book illustrator to say this, but Psycho is one of my favorite films of all time. Maybe to me, one, maybe the favorite. And if you try to imagine it in color, you can see, I mean, maybe you'd see the blood, uh, in the bathtub going down the drain, it would be more vivid red. Uh, that might be a plus, but, you know, the rest, it doesn't need color, that film. Um, he even scored it in a way, he got his composer, Bernard Herrmann, to score it in this, with this, uh, it's almost a concerto for violins, which are very black and white. The violin is a very black and white sound. And um, so he, he um, it, but then we leap ahead to a couple of decades later, Gus Van Sant, the filmmaker, did try to make Psycho in color. And he shot it shot for shot, again, with different actors. And he and it was a little flop. Nobody liked it. Nobody was frightened by it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'd all seen the, the, you know, the first one, but I think it's just simply a matter of it not working as a colored film, just couldn't. Yeah, I mean, I see, I mean, in the black and white, I just get, I also just, without the color, I, I, I definitely get the emotion of, you know, the character throughout his life, like from when he was young till, you know, as, as a young adult. Um, and I don't know, I, I just think it's, it's one of the best books that I've read in a very long time. It really is. And it's, I I feel like there are certain books that you read and the characters stay with you. And this was one of them. Um, So one of the questions I had is that, you know, what, you know, from your perspective, what's the ideal age group for this book? Because I mean, it's definitely, I would say adults definitely use like high school. Would you go younger with this book, like middle, like, you know, maybe, you know, middle school. I'm just curious, like what your thoughts are. It depends completely on the child. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't recommend it for, uh, for anybody younger than 15, I think. Uh, yeah. Maybe 14. But I was surprised when the book came out, uh, or just before it was published officially, um, we had a dinner 
at Grand Central Station one night with the publisher, and the um, publicity person was there, and she said, um, "David, I have to tell you, I uh, I gave your book to my 11 year old son the other night, and I didn't tell him what it was about. I just said, here, we're publishing this. I'd like to know what you think." And he took it up to his bedroom and read it that night. And uh, so in the morning, she said, what did you think of the book? And he said, uh, I liked it. Um, he said, I just, I had two questions when I was reading it. One was, I wasn't sure what that thing in the jar was. Yeah. Um, uh, but now I know it's a, it was a baby. And, and he also said, uh, and I guess uh, David's mom really wasn't into men very much. Yeah. <laughs> Those were his two comments. Yeah. I think he was probably an extraordinary child. But uh, I think 11 is, is way too young. Maybe it's not anymore. I don't know. Kids know so much more. Yeah, I, I yeah, I agree with you that it depends on the it depends on the child, um, for sure. But I definitely feel like high school, you know. But what I loved is that concept of graphic novels for adults. Mm-hmm. Which I really like because, you know, I love reading graphic novels. I really do. I mean, I'll I'll read one, I'll give it to my daughter, um, and who's 13. So I do really enjoy graphic novels as an adult. And I just kind of love that concept of it because why as adults, can't we still enjoy pictures? You know, I mean, I love reading novels too, you know, just like, you know, without the pictures, but I do, there's something that you get from a graphic novel. That's a little, that's different from the novel. Like, I I don't know. I just love that whole, I love the concept of it. I've, Spent, I have a whole room full of graphic novels. Uh, I've spent so much money and time with them over the years. But I, I think if I had to say, it seems to me there may be three, five at the least that really stay with me. Yeah. Um, so many of them are sort of false starts or... Um, crippled by a lack of drawing skills Mm -hmm. Um, or sometimes the art is just fantastic and the story is very weak Mm -hmm. or vice versa. The story is good and the art just doesn't come up to it. Um, It's funny that those French novels, graphic novels that I was so enamored with uh, years ago, um, when they got translated into English, I thought the stories were kind of stupid. But you know, it, it was—it's uh, ironic because they were the ones that inspired me to go ahead with this medium. Yeah, and so different, you know. It's and so what was like? What would you say just to kind of finish up? But what would you say is, you know, what's similar and what's different? from let's say like your let's say your you know like your experience versus like how you wrote the book because obviously there was a lot of similarities because it's a memoir but was there anything that you thought that you specifically changed in the book that was a little bit different from your own life um not changed but left out um 
you know, one of the one of the real problems with writing a memoir is that when you begin, your whole life floods back on you, and everything that happened to you seems monumentally important. Uh, uh, and yet, as you go on and try to make a book out of it that people can actually understand, you find that you have to eliminate certain things, and that can, I think, lead naturally to a kind of misunderstanding about the life you're trying to tell. For example, I'll just give you an example from Stitches. I, I did have, in high school, quite a, um, an active social life at a Unitarian church in Detroit. I had a group of wonderful friends that I spent as much time as I could with. And we even put on plays and so on. I, I was the director because I had no voice and sometimes the playwright, but uh, um, I had to leave that out. I left them all out. Uh, and I felt bad about it, but I realized if I put everything in that happened to me, all the people I ever met, yeah. the people who, you know, who seemed in the events that all seemed so important to me, the book was going to be like 700 pages long or 1,500. And um, I just uh, didn't feel that that was the uh, that that was a necessary necessary thing to do. I just had to, uh, as my good editor told me, concentrate on your own story, David. You know, just make it your story. Don't bring in all these this whole cast. Right. Right. Not necessary. So, you know, you. My whole intent. In uh, everything I do is to tell the truth, but as a writer, you know, as a as a maker of stories, sometimes the truth has to be jimmied a little bit. Well, I felt in that. Mm-hmm. And you have a a second graphic novel also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, so. that real novel that. That was not autobiographical, although it has obviously um, some auto- autobiographical themes in it. Yeah, uh, it's a rougher story in some ways, um, if if possible. <laughs> if you can believe it, it's a little darker than Stitches. Uh, you obviously you haven't read it, so I'm not going to go into it. Well, so so is there anything else that you wanted to add um, before we finish up? Mm. Um, no, I'm really grateful for your curiosity. Uh, well, yeah. I, I really appreciate it too because I I just I, I don't know. There's no I don't think there's any words to describe how much I really was captivated by the story. Thank you. And and the um I mean, I just, one of the things that I also want to say, I know we talked about before was just the, that the, the language, the nonverbal language of the characters was something that, and this is something I always try to describe to people is that we communicate in so many different ways, right? It's not just with speech. There's, you know, facial expressions, there's body language, there's the way we carry ourselves. And, you know, you represented that perfectly in the book. So, which I think is just really hard to do for sure. So um, I just really appreciate you being on and talking 
today about um, about stitches because I know for me it was I was really looking forward to it. And um, it's an honor for me to have you on my podcast. So thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Have me back sometime. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for listening today. Listen and learn with us at Language During Mealtime.